All right, good morning. We'll get started on the, uh, this by the way is the last class for this class because we are out of books in the, in the New Testament. It's supposed to run the next week, but we're out of books. So unless we're going to do, you know, make up something, which is a lot of the church fathers in the first century did, they just made up extra books. But Randall and I don't have time to write that, and I'm going to be in Africa next week. But Randall says, oh, we'll take the week off. So no class next week. All right, we have got come to the last book, Revelation. Remember, we, uh, we're doing this whole year in the order that the books were written. Revelation is for sure the last book. Uh, apocalypsis is the Greek. It means revelation. We take apocalyptic to mean end of times. That's not what the author meant. He meant revelation. He is, he is not keeping secrets. He is revealing secrets. And so uh, this book was written late first century to people to assuage. They are very worried about stuff. And he is telling them, here's what's going to happen. And uh, we'll talk about more about that in a second. Because we have 2,000 years of church teaching layered on this book. Uh, which makes it sometimes very difficult to understand if you try to go through 2,000 years of what other people thought about the book without actually reading the book. All right, let's take a look at Twitchy all morning. Let's try this again. All right. What I'm going to try to do is set up the culture for this book because to really understand this, you have to understand the culture in which it is written. We've talked about that the entire time is that you can't layer a 21st century knowledge and theology on top of these books were written in the first century. The principles are the same, but you have to understand to whom they were written and what the culture was. This is written to these churches in Asia. Uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Perit, uh, oh, I can't even speak anymore. Pergamum, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Uh, this was the area that Paul established the church and then continue to grow. To understand exactly what they're laying on, we're going to go back and do a little bit of emperor history. Uh, take you back to your history classes or Latin classes. First real emperor is Augustus. He's the emperor when Jesus is born. He rules, by the way, green means they're a good emperor, red means they're a bad emperor. <laughs> red also means they did not die a natural death. The whole thing about the Romans is, if you were not a good emperor, you had a relatively short lifespan. Because there are other people who wanted to be emperor. So you have Augustus, uh, he passes away, you have Tiberius. Tiberius is the guy ruling when Jesus is teaching and establishes the church. Uh, then you have Caligula for four years, who was a really bad emperor. He's red. He does not die a natural death. His uncle, Claudius, takes over. Claudius is a good emperor. 
then you go down to Nero. Nero was generally not considered a good emperor. He, uh, remember, we talked about him when, some earlier on. He's 18 when he becomes emperor. Imagine yourself at 18, unlimited power, unlimited budget. <laughs> and think how good of emperor you would have made. About as good as Nero. Uh, Nero managed to stay emperor for about 12 years, which is really amazing, considering how he was good at some things, he was bad at some things. But Nero, after he dies, they have three emperors in a year. At this point, everybody is fighting to be emperor. The one thing Nero does that affects Jewish history and affects church history is he appoints Vespasian and Titus in AD 64 to go to Judea and put down the Jewish rebellion. And when you're Roman and you put down a rebellion, I'm going to translate that for you. Kill all the men, sell all the women and children into slavery. That was their orders. Uh, and they do that. AD 64, 70 Jerusalem falls, Masada falls, what, 72? Mm -hmm. Basically, if you were 15 or older and you're a man, they killed you. If you're a woman, you got sold into slavery. If you're a child, you got sold into slavery. Uh, it destroyed Second Temple uh, uh, Jewish religion because the temple's no more. When they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed Jerusalem. There was nothing left. These three guys fight it out. They each kill each other sequentially in a year. The Senate and the Praetorian Guard gets tired of it. So who's the best emperor? The guy who does not want to be emperor, Vespasian. He's, down, he's actually living in Bethlehem at the time. Uh, the, the Romans leveled Jerusalem, uh, Bethlehem and used that as their area of which they were attacking Jerusalem from. So the Senate sends a letter says, hey, Vespasian, come back to Rome. You're the new emperor. So he leaves Titus in charge, comes back, and he's a really good emperor. He, you see, lives 10 years, dies natural causes. His son Titus takes over. Most of these guys are, are generation skipping. Tiberius is the grandchild of Augustus because they rule a while, and you know, your average person I live in the 50s, so if you became emperor when you were 40, you probably won't live that long, even if someone wasn't trying to kill you, poison you, et cetera. So Titus takes over. Titus is older. He dies a natural death in two years. His brother, Domitian, takes over. Domitian, you can see, is in red. You would think if your father and brother were good emperors, you'd be a good emperor. He wasn't. The reason Domitian is important is he is the emperor when John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation are written. All right. Now, we're going to layer something on top of this. It shows up throughout the book. Emperor worship. Uh, <clears throat> emperor worship began with Julius Caesar. The important thing was the only people who declared themselves gods were two people, Nero, Domitian. Everyone else was declared a god after they died. So what happens is Augustus makes Julius Caesar a god. Tiberius makes Augustus a god, etc. as they move through. Now each god got, gets a temple, one temple. And it turns out 
that the Senate was not real keen on having the temples of previous emperors in Rome. And so the only person who has a temple in Rome is Julius Caesar. Everyone else, uh, when Augustus dies, Tiberius doesn't know what, where to build the temple. And then all the, Jew, uh, the Greek cities suddenly send people to him and say, hey, put the temple in our city. Because that, that was the norm for Greek cities. They would, have, they would create temples to their dead kings. They would deify them. And so all of a sudden, in the area that we're now, in Ephesus, Smyrna, all these temples to deified emperors show up. Uh, like I said, ancestor worship was the norm. Your household would have a shrine to your paterfamilias, or the father of your family. So you would work, you would light a candle or do some sort of thing every time you left the house for the person who founded your family. So put the temples out where the worship, to worship the dead emperors, was a big thing. People would come from miles away. Uh, if you were asked to sacrifice to the emperor and you failed, you did not want to, that's treason. How did the Romans treat treason? You don't go to jail. They just kill you. So, and, that's, and we know from early church father writing that that's what they do with Christians. They would bring him in uh, to the courtroom. They would have a little statue of the current emperor or previous dead emperor and say, you, you say you're, you're a loyal Roman, sacrifice. If you did not sacrifice at that moment, they would look, take you out back to the courthouse and kill you. Uh, so that's why it's very important uh, to understand how emperor worship fits in. Vespasian dies. Titus doesn't rule long enough. He starts his temple. He, when he dies, Domitian takes the temple to Vespasian and makes the temple to Titus. Guess where that temple is? It's in one of the seven cities, I can't remember. It's in Ephesus. So, the church, which is basically centered a lot in Ephesus, is now in the temple, and then Domitian decides it's better to be a living God than a dead God. So, he takes Titus's temple and makes it his temple. Now you have to sacrifice Domitian in the city, which is kind of becoming the center of the church. That's the culture that we're, that this letter is written in. And also remember that a lot of the Christian, the Jewish Christians, left Judea during the rebellion. John, history says John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, left Jerusalem and came to Ephesus. We know John creates a school for teaching people in Ephesus. Uh, and so then we have the letters John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. So Domitian is ruling. He does not like Christians. It's the first time in, the, in Roman history that the entire empire is allowed to persecute Christians. Uh, and so Domitian's rolling. You'll also notice that he dies in 96. You're going to see that date come up in just a second. All right. The book of Revelation. Its author is either John the Apostle or John the Elder. Because the second and third John are from the Elder to the people. Most people consider John the Apostle 
the author. I will tell you that N.T. Wright, guy who knows a little bit more Bible than I do, <laughs> considers John the Elder as the, as the author. John the Elder was probably a disciple of John the Apostle. Uh, it's written in the Isle of Patmos around 95 AD. Domitian dies in 96. That's how either John the Elder or John the Apostle get off the island and back to Ephesus. Churches in Asia, persecution's occurring. And think about it, it's, it's really also written to the Jewish Christians. It's a very, very, very Jewish book. Because think of the Jews, because post-destruction of Jerusalem, the Jews kicked the Jewish Christians out of their synagogues. To you and I, we're going like, I'm just going down the street to the next church, right? That didn't occur in, in Judaism. Because you think if you're a Jew and you're a Christian, you have to eat kosher. So where are you going to buy your food from? They won't talk to you if you're kicked out of the synagogue. Who's going to educate your children? All the schools are synagogue-based. Who are you going to marry your kids to? Because they will not talk to you. Because you're now kicked out of the synagogue. So you have this huge pool of Jewish Christians that are in Asia, uh, modern-day Turkey, that are disconnected from their roots. They're Christian, but they live basically as uh, believing Jews. So they eat kosher, they dress differently, they, they're in the same occupations. <laughs> but now you can't marry your children off. It's hard, to, it's hard to buy stuff. It's hard to educate your children. Uh, your normal customers, because the Jews tended to uh, work together, now all your other customers who are buying your stuff won't, won't shop from you anymore. It was a tough time to be a Jewish Christian. So, John, uh, the author John, I think it's John the Apostle, he would have been in his 80s. Uh, he, he identified himself with John several times. He's on the Isle of Patmos uh, because of the testament of Jesus. Clement and Arrhenius and the other guys said that, say in the writings, the Apostle John was sent to Patmos by the mission in AD 95. Uh, and then we, we start the Polycarp, Gentomarta, Arrhenius, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Clement, and Origen all say John the Apostle wrote it. That's important because Polycarp is a direct apostle of John's. He studies under, John converts him to Christianity, and he studies under him. So I'm pretty, if he says John the Apostle wrote it, he was there, I'm pretty confident that that was John. Uh, very early on, by 8070, this book is well accepted into the canon. Uh, so it's not like this is one of the books that goes to the 400s. Is it? Is it not? Early, early on, they said this is this is written by John. This is a, a book in the Christian canon. And just kind of remember the, the time frame here. Most of the books of the Bible are written in Nero's reign. Sorry, books of the New Testament Bible, not the Old Testament. Uh, New Testament, about half the New Testament is written during Nero. Some before and all the John stuff afterwards, most of John was under Domitian. Uh, so that, so you can kind of see the church has started here, we're 70 years later. So we're into the second and third generation of Christians. Alright, and remember, underlying theme of the New Testament, personal reformation 
not public revolution. Because that's one question the Jews had, is that if, as a Jewish Christian, do I, since the people are persecuting me, do I fight back? Do we bound together and create little armies and rebel against the Romans? They all remember what happened 20 years before this. Because all their friends and relatives in uh, Judea did it, and the Romans killed them all. So that's kind of the underlying behind-the-scenes thought, is that it's all about personal reformation. Uh, there's, there's the cities again. There are other books at the same time around us. Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Enoch are all books that are very similar in style. And the Jews would have known this a lot. Uh, this is an interesting part. There are 404 verses in Revelation. 278 of them are direct quotes from the Old Testament or direct allusions. It's a very, very, very Jewish book. Uh, and the other thing is when you read the book, look at two things. What does John hear? And then compare that to what does John see? That's, that's also a very Jewish thing. What do I hear and what do I see? There are two different things in this book. All right, now let's talk about how do you interpret this. Uh, you can be symbolic, you can be literal. There are some guy, there are a couple of theologians I follow that straddle this. They call themselves symbolic literalist. Uh, I think they just don't want to make a decision. I think you can be a symbolic, you can be a literal, but you can't be both. What they do is they're they're mostly symbolic except when they want it to be literal. And I said that's like that's like interpreting. Without reading the book, it's, here's what the book's going to say, and let me go back and make it say that. So they, most people are either symbolic or literal. All right. When you're in the book, first century Judaism, three, when you see things repeated three times, that means emphasis. We all know the book, uh, if, you, if you've got your King James out, truly, 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 I say unto you, or verily, 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 that's Jesus saying this is really important to listen to it. So in Revelations, when you see things repeated three times, or there are threes, it's important. Six is the number of incompletion, because seven is the number of perfection, completion. So uh, we'll get to that. We all know that you know the number of the beast. We're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, Jewish completion is 12, because there are 12 tribes. So when you see the 12, that's Jewish for where everything's complete. And a thousand is a lot. Uh, we, we all tend to think, you know, we're used to going to base, you know, football games with 100,000 people in the stands. That did not exist in the first century. You know, you lived in a village of 50 people. So a thousand is a huge number. And a thousand years, if you live on average 50 years, if you're old, a thousand years is functionally forever. So in symbolism, a thousand is forever. All right, and then you get preterist, historicalist, futurist, and idealist, which is like, when did these events occur? Preterists say everything occurred in the first century, and we're just running out the end of the book. Historicalists say it's just this long chain of events from the first century to the end of time. The futurists say everything, nothing's happened yet. It's all going to happen in the future. And the idealist says it's a symbolic picture of the timeless truce of the victory of good over evil. 
And so everyone falls in one of those four categories. And throughout history, the church had wandered between all these interpretations. Uh, the first century, obviously, would have said they're all preterist because they don't have 2,000 years of history. Uh, the guys who you read a lot, right now in, in America, it's very popular to be, and unless we need to talk about the thousand year reign, because these two relate. You can be amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial, dispensational premillennial. Now you know why this book is really hard for people to interpret, because you've got all these different layerings of interpretations on it. And there are a lot of good people in each one of them. Oh, yes. Uh -huh. I mean, and there, there are a lot of people. I, I, uh, Michael Easley, yeah. good friend, is a uh, post-tribulation premillennialist. I would probably fall into amillennial, amillennialist class. Uh, I've got, this is probably the most popular thing in Western thought right now. Uh, dispensational premillennialism. Yes? Can define these terms a little All bit right. more? It has to do with when did the church start? When does Jesus come back permanently? The rapture and the thousand year reign at the end of this book. So, uh, amillennialism is the easiest to understand. Jesus starts the church when, in the book, they say the millennium, it's just the time between when the church starts and when the second judgment comes. Jesus comes back, everyone goes to heaven or hell. All right, that's the easiest one. Postmillennialism uh, really started in like 15, 1600s. Uh, what this is, Jesus starts the church, and what happens is the earth, people on the earth get better and better and better, more Christ-like, until you reach a point where it becomes a millennium that we're all Christians, we're all living together, we live together for a thousand years, then Jesus comes. That's postmillennialism. These two are very, very similar. The only question is, is, that, is there a rapture or not? Church starts. Jesus comes back. You've got a millennium in here where Jesus comes and rules on the earth for a thousand years. The difference is dispensational, there is a rapture. A rapture means all the good Christians at the time who are alive at the time of the rapture immediately go to heaven. So they skip all this tribulation time. The, that's why this is post-tribulational and pre-tribulational. The question is, do, you, do the Christians go through the tribulation, which is the wars and everything, or do they go straight to heaven? It depends on your theology. If I take this theology, I really want this, right? I want to skip the whole tribulation thing. Uh, this is probably the most common uh, theology among most evangelical churches right now. Churches of Christ, our base is this. 1800s, when we started, we were amillennialist. Uh, most churches that you see writing are probably dispensational now. Uh, like I said, there are great people that hold all these views. Uh, my personal view, uh, I'm stealing this from another good preacher in town, I'm a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, it doesn't matter. Uh, just remember, this is all over a half a chapter at the end of this book. 
So once again, like everything else we talk about in church, don't create your theology over one, a few verses in one book that doesn't match anything else in the church in the in the scriptures. Amen. Be very careful about that. You know, watch Jesus say all the time, peace, love, unity. And don't be a hypocrite. I guess it means, actually says be truthful. But he also said don't be a hypocrite a lot. So I think that's base Christianity. This is uh, tertiary Christianity. Wackadoo. Some, sometimes people get a little fixated on this, <laughs> and they, they miss the easy stuff. All right. You know, I love the Bible Project. This is their slide. Uh, they have two 12-minute videos to explain. Everyone else, they do them six to eight minutes. Revelation takes two 12-minute videos to get to this. Uh, so watch them offline. I, I can't do it this time. But the biggest thing is there's no, there's no secret code here. This is basically telling you what... It's happened in history. What's going to happen in history? It's man versus God. Uh, but they're, they're, I also really like them because uh, they, they're symbolic like I am. Uh, they're relatively amillennial. So, you know, it, they agree with me, so therefore they must be right. <laughs> What's that? Uh, confirmational bias? Yeah. All right, let's talk about the structure of Revelation. Uh, you have an introduction, like all good books. You have the letters of seven churches. Most of you have probably seen sermons on the seven letters of seven churches because that's the really easy part to teach in Revelation. And so usually what happens, they spend a week on each letter. Then they spend a week on the rest of the book, and that's your sermon series. Because this is, this is easy. This, once you start getting here, it gets really complicated depending on which view you take. And no matter who, what view you take, someone in your audience will take the opposite view. And then there's lots of emails and letters going back and forth. That's why most pre preachers preach that. And they said, you should read this and understand that later. All right, here we go. In the beginning, uh, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must, must soon take place. This is John saying, guys, I know you're suffering. Let me help your suffering. Here's what's going to happen. So he's not telling secrets. There's no secret codes here that, you know, you need to figure this out uh, in order for stuff to occur. He's saying, this is, let, let me help you understand what's going on. So God gave it to Jesus. He made it known by sending his angel to a servant God. So Jesus tells the angel, the angel comes down and sees John. John's on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. That's the end of the book. And that's really what John does in this book. He said, yeah, hey, I know you guys are suffering. Here, here again, it, Jesus is in control. He is going to win. Let me show you how he wins. All right. We have the seven churches. We know this person's... Uh, from this area because the order that he tells you the seven churches is the order of the postal road, the Roman road that connects the seven churches. So this is a guy from this area who's been to these churches. He, he goes church, church, church. This is the order that you'd have to visit them if you start in Ephesus. So seven churches, Ephesus, you know, this is, you know, we're seven years after Jesus. Uh, he says, you know, you've forsaken the love you had at first. 
First century love is a verb. You cannot love somebody without acting in love. Uh, so basically, they have all knowledge. They have no action. They're very intellectual, but they're not loving people the way Jesus. Remember, you're in the, he's writing this to Jewish Christians in the middle of Ephesus, which is where emperor worship is, Temple of Diana. He, also a huge Jewish uh, number of synagogues that are here. So from the Christian standpoint, the Jews are out to get them, the Romans are out to get them, uh, and the Greeks, who sacrificed to the Roman gods, are out to get them. So it uh, says so you have to love. Next city up is Smyrna. There's no negatives. This is not our Smyrna, by the way. But this is where our Smyrna gets its name. Uh, there are no negatives to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna is another city that has, by the end of the first century, they've got two emperor temples. Huge Jewish con congregation there. Two emperor temples. The Christians have problems in Smyrna because you're, you, you pick, pick your God to sacrifice to. The Christians aren't doing it. And so all the friends and neighbors turn them in. So heavy persecutions from the Jews and the Romans. And he says, you're going to be all right. Uh, Pergamum, uh, it talks about Balaam here. Balaam is, that's a whole lesson series on who Balaam was. And, but basically he says, you can't compromise. You can't be kind of a Christian. And uh, that's what he's talking about. That the Christians are trying, you know, it's kind of like, well, how much sacrifice can I get by with? You know, can I sacrifice a little to the gods? Or, you know, can I be like an 80% Christian, 20% Roman? And what he says, no, you can't. You, it's, you're all one or you're all the other. You can't be halves. No compromise. Thyatira, uh, it's a metalworking town, so there's lots of uh, allusions to metalworking in there. Talk, they talk about Jezebel. Jezebel's another person who is a queen. It's about compromise. You can't compromise and be Christian. Uh, Sardis, next town, is super wealthy, medium wealthy. Uh, all the buildings were built with black stone in Sardis. So that's why you see all these black and white allusions in the letter at that point. Uh, reputation of being alive says, but you're dead. You're not living for Jesus. I mean, and th th this is God telling Jesus, telling the angel, telling John, telling these people. So, I mean, that, that if I was in this church, I'd, that'd be a horrible thing to read is, oh, by the way, God thinks you're dead. You're, you're you know, there's no fool in God. All right, ne next on is Philadelphia. There's no negatives, the open door. Uh, again, very, they are, the Christians are very heavily persecuted in Philadelphia. And they're, and they're holding fast. Laodicea is the last one. Uh, it's super wealthy. It's so wealthy that there was an earthquake in the late 70s. Rome came in to rebuild all these cities. Laodicea says, no, 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 we got it. We have so much money, we're going to rebuild ourselves. We don't need Roman money to do it. That's how wealthy they were. Uh, they're, all about, they're, the, they're the banking center. Uh, that's where all the banks were headquartered. Uh, they're textiles, I'll say out. Eye salve. That's why you see those allusions in this letter to about your eyes, because Laodicea was known for its eye medicine, uh, and it's also the one that the, has no water. So you know, it's the one that preachers love to preach about, like you know, bitter water, hot water, cold water, all that. 
They, we all see it as a hang of water. They're so wealthy that they pipe it in from neighboring cities. So these are the seven churches that he picks to tell, you know, kind of tell them, you need to do some course correction. You know, you're doing well, you're not doing so well, you need to do more of this. Again, because he's telling the churches, here's what's coming. You know, here, I know what's coming, you got to know where you're at. First part of the letter is, here's where you're at. Here's the course corrections you need to make as a church. Uh, there again is the, like I said, so if you land here, the road runs like this. And Patmos is right here at the island. That's where John is. He's in exile on this island off the coast. All right. In 10 minutes, the rest of the book. Ready? Here we go. <laughs> uh, throne room, chapter 4 and 5. Uh, it's all, chapter 4 is all about God. It's just images of absolute power. You got to put your first century hat on. Everything in there is about a, a powerful God who's so powerful, he's more powerful than anything you can imagine. That's chapter 4. Chapter 5, the scroll. The scroll is inheritance. In the first century, you would write your, who's going to inherit all your stuff on the scroll, roll it up, and then you would stamp it, and other people would stamp it so that there were multiple seals. So when you died, they could look at it and make sure that, you know, that one of your other heirs didn't break into it and you know, change it all, you know, scratch it out and put his name. So very common uh, activity that occurred so people understood when this, the, the seven, the scroll shows up with the seven seals, that's normal. But what that says immediately is this is inheritance. That the scroll is going to say who inherits from God. Because we just talked about God in the next first chapter. This is where the hear and the see are totally different. John hears the line of Judah, the root of David. Remember, he's writing this to Jews. Because what did Jews want? Jews thought Jesus was going to come and conquer the world. The lion of Judah. What did David do? He conquered everything. The roar of the lion, powerful. John hears that. When he turns to look, what he sees is the sacrifice lamb of God. So a sacrificial, not a conquering king, but a sacrificial lamb. The lamb is what's going to inherit from God, not the powerful king. So this is turning what a lot of the Jews in the first century thought on his head. It's not, I'm going to conquer people. It's like, I'm going to serve them. Jesus was sacrificed for the people. If he was sacrificed, you need to sacrifice yourself and serve people. So again, difference between what John hears, what he sees. What he hears is what we call first century Judaism. You know, we're going to conquer the world. The Jews are going to conquer the world. And what he sees is, no, the Lamb is going to conquer the world through service. All right. We're now going to seven seals. The seven seals on the inheritance. Uh, the way I view these three next three events is that you have the same event repeated three times because I'm symbolic. The guys who are literalists will tell you this is 21 different events. Uh, and there are a gazillion books out there talking about what events are these. Because throughout history, people have tried to fit their current situation on this book. So when we get to the number of the B666, throughout history that has been pick a Roman emperor, uh, pick 
the Slavs coming in, uh, they were seen as the 666. Uh, Suleiman the Great was 666. In our century alone, uh, the Kaiser in World War One, Hitler in World War II, uh, Emperor Toto, uh, Saddam Hussein, think of who else? P pick a bad guy. I guarantee there's someone right now writing Putin <laughs> is is the, uh, the the 666. I guarantee it. L look it up on Google when you get home or on your phone right now. I guarantee someone is doing that. So the seven seals. Uh, open the seven seals on the inheritance. Uh, that's where we, get the, we see the four horsemen. comes from the Old Testament. The ultra-slain believer for the first six sales. For first six seals. That's hard to say really fast. Uh, and then you have the destruction. Then you have this little interlude that what John hears is 144,000 Jews. That goes back to numbers. As the Jews were about to enter the Holy Land the first time, they numbered the troops. 144,000. So again, it's that, it's that allusion to we're going to conquer this. So John turns and he looks. What does he see? An uncounted multitude of all peoples of the earth that is led by the Lamb. So what he sees is the church, which is it's not a Jewish church. It is a church of all people on earth. They're all the same, and they're all with Jesus, and Jesus is leading them as a slain lamb. It's a lamb who's bleeding. And then the seventh seal is broken. There's 30 minutes of silence. Uh, and then we move on to the next seal. Each, each seventh seal leads to the next seventh trumpet and then to the seventh, seven bowls. Now we have the seven trumpets. This is me, again, my interpretation is this is the same event seen from a slightly different view, but it's all the end of the earth. Uh, so the six trumpets, the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues, still not, did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons, idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols they cannot see, hear, or talk. They did not repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual morality, or their thefts. That's a pretty uh, strong statement. You know, these guys are seeing all these bad things happening, and they're still not changing their life. That doesn't, doesn't apply to me. You know, I'm, what I'm doing is right. And John's saying, no, it's not. Uh, and so basically, you see the six trumpets. You have an interlude. Uh, this angel comes and brings a little scroll to John and grinds it up into food and makes him eat it. This is, a, this is Ezekiel does exactly the same thing. And there, there's two witnesses who serve for time, time, and half a times. Depends if you interpret it as three years or they just symbolic. You can take your pick. Then the seventh uh, trumpet sounds. And from the, you know, the Messiah, uh, Handel's Messiah, this is where the word comes from. The king of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. And then you have the sevenfold on men, you know, at the end, all the chords in. That's where this comes from. So that's what they're saying. And more interestingly, for all you uh, Indiana Jones fans, within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. So it is not in a warehouse in the United States. It's in the Vatican. It's or the Vatican. It's, it's in heaven. Uh, that's John actually, and, and to the Jews, that's super important because, you know, the, the ark had disappeared. And that's where God lived. He lived above that ark. And so John rolls around and says, oh, he just mentions this in passing. Oh, I see this temple. 
and oh, the Ark of the Covenant's in it. Kind of wrapping up everything to the Jews. Jeff, can I ask you a question? Sure. I know how you're going to answer, but I want everybody to hear it. When they stood and read this letter in the churches that it went to, did anybody understand what was being said? I, yes, I think they understood that much better than we... They don't have a 2,000 years of people trying to interpret it right. for them. I think this helped them tremendously. Absolutely. So this was a peaceful letter to them. It's not what we interpreted, but to them it was, it was a letter, oh, we're going to win. Okay. And uh, mid-course correction for some of the churches, but for the average person, they go, okay, now I understand. Uh, then we have this whole thing in persecution, deliverance, and judgment. The mother, the baby, and the dragon. Uh, this is the number 666. The number 666 is simply repeated three times, the number of incompletion. Uh, also, they brand the number on people. That is an allusion to the Jews who had the phylacteries. So it's not, it's not like the Jews didn't, they totally understood that. They're saying, I can have my God's phylactery. Or I can have the demon's number on me. I'm going to have something on my head and on my sleeves. Mm -hmm. That's what they're doing here. Uh, you see 144,000 virgins. They sing a song. The new song is deliverance. So that's to the people of the person. Oh, we're going to win. This is deliverance. And then three angels come by. Uh, it's really important when you look about the beast comes from the sea and under the earth, because you remember Randall shows the picture of the cave. Where's evil come? From underneath the ground. Where story of Jonah. Where's the evil live? In the great deep sea. What he's saying is the beasts are, are in the sea and under the earth. That's where we think the evil is. And he says, no, no, no. God is control of the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. So it says God's control, right? You think there are beasts there, but God is in control of them. So it's the fact that God is winning this war. Uh, 1516, the seven plagues, it's basically go back to Exodus. He's redoing seven out of the ten plagues in Exodus. Uh, the fall of Babylon, there's a threefold hallelujah. Babylon reflects any earthly power, not necessarily just Babylon. It's not Rome, it's whatever. All right. Last three, chapters 20, 20 to 22. The Bible's symmetrical. If you look at Genesis 1, 2, 3, God creates man, you see the fall of man. Revelations 21, 20, 21, 22, you see God coming and raising man up to live with him again in the New Jerusalem. So the Bible starts and stops on the same note, with man living with God. And this is where you get the thousand years. Pick your favor, your flavor of which thousand years you like. There's the final judgment. The new Eden, God is drew, you know, Genesis started the old Eden. New Eden, God will live with us in Eden. And then the new Jerusalem comes, which is perfection. Don't get all tied up in the, into the, you know, the cube that's however many tall, however many wide, however many deep. The, that's very symbolic to the Jews. But the most important part when you read the New Jerusalem is there's no temple in, Jer in the New Jerusalem because God is there. You don't need, because God lived in the temple. God's going to live with us at the end of this book, at the end of time. 
He doesn't, you don't need a temple to approach God because God is now living in you. And there you go. Revelation in 46 minutes. <laughs> Yay! Randy, Randy Harris gives the best, most succinct deal on Revelation after reading and studying it for years. He says, God's team, God te God's team wins. Yes. Pick a side. Don't be stupid. Yes, that's exactly the, that's the book of Revelation. It, that's what he says. At the end, let me show you the end. God's, if you're on God's team, you're living in perfection. The other guys are not. Right. Whose team do you play for? Exactly. That's, that is the book of Revelation in a nutshell. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it was very helpful to people in the first century. We need to not be, not be super concerned and, and layer all our theology on it. Uh, again, because the theology of Christ is that you love people, you have unity, be truthful. Be, be God to those people. This was just, for people in the persecution, we have problems. Uh, this book helped them. And it, it helps us, too, because we know at the end of time, who's going to win? God. It just tells you. Like, like I said, I'm, I'm a pan-millennial, so it all pans out the end, right? We're all in New Jerusalem. All right. And so no class next week, because we're out of books. <laughs> Apocrypha, Apocrypha. That's right. <laughs>